Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, when she was nine years old, she completely lost her voice and she found out she had nodules on her vocal cords. Working as hard as an athlete to get into the Olympics, this young girl didn't stop until she got her voice back. And luckily for all of us, she did all that and more. Welcome Beanie Feldstein to the podcast. A-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, people now do his impression of Barbara Streisand to Barbara Streisand. Welcome, Seth Radetzky. Hey, okay. Hey, okay. Hi, everyone. Today I'm here with Seth Rudetsky. Seth is a performer, writer, producer, arranger, musical director, musical supervisor, conductor, and musician. He was Emmy-nominated for being a comedy writer on The Rosie O'Donnell Show. He starred in the Roundabout Theater Company's (laughs) revival of The Ritz and also appeared on the MTV reality show Legally Blonde, the musical The Search for Elle Woods as a vocal coach for the contestants throughout the competition. In 2013, Disaster, a musical comedy starring Seth that he co-wrote with Jack Plotnick, opened off-Broadway, and then this year it moved to Broadway. He has written five books, including The Q Guide to Broadway, Broadway Nights, and a young adult novel, My Awesome, Awful Popularity Plan. In addition to being a writer and an authority on the music of Broadway, Rudetsky is truly an accomplished musician. He hosts a show about Broadway for Sirius XM. He posts deconstructions online of great Broadway singers. He performs one-man shows that reenact and tell hilarious stories of Broadway musicals and Broadway divas. He has played piano for over 15 Broadway shows and was Grammy-nominated for his concert CD of Hair. He has launched Seth TV, and together with his husband, James, They were the masterminds behind Broadway for Orlando, which has raised a tremendous amount of money for the victims and their families affected by the massacre. He is beloved by all and considered the unofficial mayor of Broadway. He is equal parts Broadway fan and Broadway star. Welcome, Seth Radetzky. 
Thanks. Okay, first of all, I did not star on the Ritz. Lily had six lines, but I love that. Your mother point. told me that you starred on it. Oh my god! It was literally, and I counted my lines. It was like we're busy. I said we're busy. Watch it, Googie. I and actually, I probably had three lines then. We're busy. I said we're busy. Watch it, Googie. And then I had a, a little tiny song in Act Two. But I like that it's called starring. Well, for Don't any of Rose. you who did not see the Ritz, basically, you just have. You've uh, just seen you Seth Rogen's <laughs> my journey. <laughs> Every line you just said, did it mean something to you? Did you work on it? Did you research it? Did you know who your character was? No. But I had a really fun song in Act 2. That what was it? Well, the Ritz took place in a bathhouse. And Act 2, there is like a, a show being put on that the patrons, it's kind of like an amateur show. And I don't know what it was originally. I can't even remember. But Joe Montel, the director, said, he said, you know, this place plays in the 70s and Poppy Pippin just opened. So I'd love for your character to like do magic to do and, you know, try to recreate what was on Broadway. So we kept trying to think of what it could be. And Michael Lee Scott, who was like the associate choreographer, came up with this idea that I came out with these umbrellas where the umbrella had been taken away. But at the end of each umbrella kind of peg were these white gloves. So when I was saying, join us, like I opened up the umbrellas and had all these white gloves around my face, kind of like Ben Vereen did. And I twirled them. It was, it was, and I was in a black unitard. And then I had two white gloves on my ass that were like cupping it. Anyway, it wound up being actually a big highlight of the show because it was hilariously stupid. So that, I guess I was starring because of that 30-second number. You're See? right. I take it back. I, I was mean, a star. has everyone on the planet done 30 seconds of their own solo <laughs> on Broadway? No. Okay. You have. Of course, after that, and we'll talk about your genius, genius performance in Disaster, which oh, I love so you. much. And you're a leading man. you brought such great humor and pathos and moved me. But more on that later. So I want to start, if you don't mind, last night, um, I've spent the weekend with you in the privacy of my own bedroom. And one of the things that I found myself watching along with my 10-year-old boy last night was you deconstructing Barbara and Judy. And my son was mesmerized. Your uncanny ability to scientifically go through somebody's voice, but also with the fun and passion of a true fan and the joy that you get listening to it, I watched my son begin a new chapter in his life. So I have to thank you for that. Wow, thank you for the analysis. It was, (laughs) five cents, please. Exactly. Uh, It is purely my pleasure. So were you a musical prodigy? No, I think a prodigy is like I was playing like Mozart concertos when I was six, which I wasn't. I think I was very advanced. I think I was, I think I was really talented on the piano. So like, I mean, the big story that I remember that kind of made me go, oh, wow, I'm sort of ahead of everybody else is I was learning um, this book called John Thompson's Teaching Little Fingers to Play. And um, near the end of the book, there's like Come Around the Mountain. So on the right side is um, the student part, which you play with two hands. You kind of divide it up. And on the left side, because the book spread out, left side was the teacher part, which he would accompany you. And when I was six, like, I learned the right side of the page just with my right hand, the left side of the page with my left hand. So I played the teacher part and the student part together, and it was like my big triumph. So I remember that's when I was like, oh, like I'm totally ahead of the other kids. So I was a really good pianist, but I think prodigies are like not freaks, but freakish that they can play crazy concertos. I was just very advanced. So that's the answer to the story is I was an advanced musician as a child. And were your parents musicians? I think they would have been had they had a lot of training. I think they had the talent I know my father was very advanced on the harmonica when he was a kid. 
But I think it's just one of those things where if you don't have the lessons, you don't know if you have it or not. So I think my parents probably had the genes for it, but they just didn't pursue it because kind of all my siblings have a lot of musical and artistic talent, and I'm sure we got it from my parents. So you grew up in Long Island, Ugh. or do you say on Long Island? Ugh, I don't. What do you say? I don't speak of it. How about that? <laughs> not a fan. When you tell people you grew up somewhere, what I do you say? Up, um, I, I grew up on Long Island. I on, on Long Island. On yeah. Long Island. Yeah. And you started music lessons as a young person. Yeah, my sister played. She's 10 years older, so my sister played piano. So I, you know, wanted, you know, I was sort of kind of copying her as a child. I was 10, you know, I was, I was five and she was 15. Did you grow up coming into the city to see Broadway shows as a family? Yeah. My, when I was in second grade, my family did a staycation instead of taking us like on, <laughs> on you know, somewhere away. And we saw three Broadway shows. Well, first of all, I'd already seen it. I saw when I was... Early 70s, when I was four years old, my parents were going to see hair. I'm sorry, you were four? Yeah, in the early 70s. Were they hippie parents? You know, it's so funny because I look back and I'm like, how inappropriate. But then I'm like, not really. I mean, there is nudity. But I remember my mother actually signature hand over my eyes when the nudity happened. That was her signature move in all R-rated movies. But um, they were sort of hippies. They were like anti-war protesters. But hair, they just loved Broadway and hair was a really big hit show. Yeah, they weren't over-the-top hippies, but they were very liberal and very left. But I think they just, they loved pop music and they took the whole family to see hair. So I saw that when I was four. I wouldn't say it had the hugest effect on me, but I remember seeing it and thinking it was good. And then when we did this quote unquote staycation in second grade, they took me to see three shows. And I remember I fell asleep only because, you know, you're tired when you're seven years old. So right. I saw Grease fell asleep, saw Pippin fell asleep. But the show that I became obsessed with was this one month revival of um, The Pajama Game with Hal Linden, Kev Calloway, and Barbara McNair. And that was that's when I became obsessed with Broadway because of the pajama game. And it was only a one-month revival, but I, I was obsessed with that show. Was there a cast album at the time? I listened to that all the time. So that was the beginning. You're lying on your bed. You're looking. You're holding it in your hand. Or are you trying to accompany it on the piano at the same time? It was both. I would get the score. That was, the, that was two things. First of all, I would try to reenact staging. And that's why I'm so jealous now of like, VCRs and YouTube. It's like in my day, you saw something a time and you tried to retain what the staging was and like recreate it in your den. So like, I, you know, I saw it a time and I would try to be like, I remember I'd always try to do my I hair. I like your syncopation. Well, that's very my, si time. that's my sister Nancy because I stayed over <laughs> her house once and she said, she goes, you left a black sock. <laughs> she wanted to, she didn't, she wanted to know it wasn't a pair of socks, left a black sock. But anyway, I remember seeing the cabaret movie and trying to recreate my hair and all I knew was like, Liza had the chair backwards. So I was like, I'm going to, so I'd always try to do that. But that's all I remember was the chair was backwards. Whereas now you can like watch a YouTube video and recreate right. the whole thing. So anyway, I would try to recreate staging, but the big deal was when I went to the library, because there are two, when you're, if you don't know that. If you're listening to this and you're not necessarily a pianist, you don't know there, there are two types of music that are given out from Broadway shows. There's the vocal selections, which is like, it's not that it's necessarily even easy piano part, but it's like, it's pared down. All the really theatrical stuff is taken out of it, like the dialogue in the middle and like. It's the melody. Yeah, it's, right? It's, it's, it's the melody. They're focusing on melody, but so it's you like can a learn different it. different key because it's an, it's an easier key to play. Mm -hmm. They'll They'll take out. They'll just take off the stuff that's very theatrical. They want to make it that you can perform this song somewhere. So the point is there were these vocal selections, but the big discovery for me is when I went to the library and I found the piano vocal scores. The piano vocal scores are what you get when you're actually putting the show on, which has it has the overture. It has literally everything. So you're saying what I do as a kid, the big deal was I would get the piano vocal scores from the library and be like, oh my God, I get to finally play all these songs. So that's would what I Would your local library have? Yeah, every local library. I mean, back in the day, every local library, I, I think... 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't think it was that special. We just had a music section. And you were interested. Yeah. And And you were the only one probably taking it. Obsessively, (laughs) yes. She was like, Seth, keep it. Yeah, exactly. You can have it. Don't worry. No one needs a deer. Um, (laughs) So I would take out the pajama game. And then I would sing. Like when my sisters, like I remember we would do I'm Not at All in Love. Me and my sister Beth would sing it together. We'd do harmony. So I was obsessed with Broadway, but my family all liked Broadway definitely and we'd all kind of perform together and I'd play or my sister would play for me and and I'd recreate choreography. I was definitely was my obsession as a child. And did you have any friends that did it too or was it just your family? Not for a long time. I mean, you know, that's why I'm also jealous of today. Like you have the internet, you know, but it gets better. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was very definitely I was the only one. I remember like I remember I saw Chicago. I was obsessed with Chicago. It was in the mid-70s when I was a kid, and I remember you know, I always felt like no one no one knew Broadway. I'd always go up to my parents' friends. and be like, oh, my God, you know Chicago? They'd be like, ah, Chicago, Chicago. I'm like, no, the Broadway musical. But, like, nobody knew it. And, like, it was Cellophane. Like, I yeah. am Mr. Cellophane. Like, silence. So, right. no, no, my parents' When did you find did. your people? Obviously, your siblings. But when did you find your people there in a community? Twice, I guess. There was one where I wasn't really let into it. The first one was I auditioned for this sh- like my first professional job. I've been auditioning for like professional shows when I was a kid, but not really getting them. Like since in around, New York or community yeah. th- like how did that happen? We didn't have community theater. I wish we did. I got cast when I was in fourth grade, they were doing this high school show called All the Way Home. And the lead one of the leads was a little boy. So and I got it. And I remember it was like a big deal that I got it. And um my father asked the theater teacher whether I could be professional and I guess he said yes. So I started going to New York and auditioning and like I think one of my big callbacks was like the show called Really Rosie, which was um a, a musical that played in New York in the seventies and didn't get it. But I, I would go and audition, and I get callback once in a while. But then I audition for this musical Oliver that they were doing at the North Stage Dinner Theater, um, and it it had Shaney Wallace who played Nancy in the movie as Nancy. Wow. So I auditioned for that, which was a big deal. Yeah, and I got I was. But it was also like my first lesson in like complete devastation because I got Let's talk about that. Okay, I got cast. It's one of the workhouse <laughs> boys, meaning I was in Food Glorious Food. But then as rehearsals progressed after a couple of days, I I wasn't one of Fagan's gang. And I wasn't I wasn't like in uh Gotta Pick a Pocket or two. I was in Food Glorious Food and Oliver, and then I kinda came in at the end and I ne- was never really told a reason. I think it's because I was fat. So I was I wasn't massively obese, but I was definitely overweight. But you I was, didn't look like a poor boy who had to pick pockets and was starving. Yeah, but I was starving in the opening number for Glorious Food. I don't know what the reason was, but I know that I wasn't cast. So that's the first horrible thing about the business mm-hmm. is like a lot of times like you just don't know why you and you come up with lots of reasons, but you really and to this day I don't know. But at the same time I had a really good voice. So I was given this extra solo in act two. I was given the milkmaid solo. Who will buy any milk today, mistress? I was the only kid that actually had a featured solo. This is just like your story of the Ritz. You start out saying you have nothing to do and then we <laughs> find out in act two like you're the showstopper. I, I wouldn't say I was a showstopper, but it I was yes. legitimate. You had something I had a feature. Yes. But then the one Fagan's gang thing I was in was the very end of Be Back Soon. So I was doing it for previews, and then the night the New York Times came, the director choreographer was like, oh, let's run this number. And then he said, um, he said, oh, set steps to the side for a second, and he ran the two guys that danced with me. And the guys came up to me like, what happened? What happened? And I said, nothing. I said, he wants to go over your choreography. And they're like, no, 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 you're not in the number. I was like, yes, I am. I went to the director, and I was like, am I still in the number? He's like, oh, no, 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 you've been cut. And it was so just like dismissive, and like it was, I literally was like sobbing, sobbing for hours. And yet again, to this day, like, I have no idea. Like, I definitely was a better dancer than the other kids. So it's like, it wasn't, you know, the steps. Was I fat? But that's the business. Like, no one ever says, 
here's what the deal is. We have too many boys, but you come up with a million reasons. But it was traumatic. So my point, my point is, it was my first lesson in the business, the devastation, the weird high of I have the only solo, but then the humiliation of like, but I've also been cut from a dance number. Highs and lows. And then in terms of finding my peeps, it was in this place in Long Island called Glen Club, where the theater was. And they're all the boys there were theater boys, and they all talk about Sweeney Todd because it was 1979. And they were almost hipper than I was because like, what is Sweeney Todd? Right. So I quote unquote found my peeps, but they were sort More of cool. Yeah, they were kind of cooler than I was. On time. Right. And I didn't know about the show. So that ended. And then the next year, I went to this musical theater summer camp. Well, really an arts camp, but it was called um, Use Dan. And I was a musical theater major. And that's when I was surrounded by like 30 kids that were obsessed with theater. And um, that was the first time I was like, you know, completely like in my element. I met other kids like me. And it, that really changed my life. And you went to Oberlin. Is that right? As a classical piano major, which is so ludicrous. Why? I, well, it's, okay, it's not ludicrous because obviously I had the quote-unquote chops. Like, you know, I was, you know, I auditioned. And you I, were playing the teacher's part when you were six. Right. I just ludicrous because I don't really like classical music. Like, I don't like it. It's like, oh, this is pretty. So I didn't really like classical music. And Would you sneak in when everyone left and were you playing show tunes? Would you kind of use the piano oh, for your own? Yeah, my, not my whole life. That's all I was doing. I mean, I was always, you know, sort of the renegade in the conservatory. And, like, you know, the scandal was, like, I played Gershwin. Like, that was, like, the big, like, <laughs> you know, you know, with this thing called In a the, leather jacket yeah, with, like, a cigarette over Totally. Like, I was, I was the bad boy. Because we have a concerto competition. And, like, the concerto competition, like, you know, it's the big final thing you do. And you compete with the whole conservatory. And... Um, I became one of the finalists, but my piece was Rhapsody in Blue, and it was definitely like it was a scandal that I, I mean, you know, in its own way, in a conservatory type of way. But the point is, where it's ludicrous is like the thought of me, like, A, I really don't have the real chops to be a contra pianist. Like, I could play classical music, so I never could have been a contra pianist, and I don't even like classical music. I just couldn't believe I got in. I loved music, so I did want to be a music director and a conductor at Broadway. Like, I loved that, but I also wanted to perform. No one really kind of sat me down and was like, here's what you should do. Like, you know, be a piano major and then you can conduct. I really was kind of figuring out myself. And I think I auditioned and I got in right away and I couldn't believe I got in. And then I visited it and, you know, it was so liberal and I always call it a gay bar with dorms because like it was so- That sounds perfect. Yeah, it was so amazing. And, you know, after like high school experience, nobody was gay and that's- You did of, not have a boyfriend in high school. No, this was the 80s. Like no one was even out. No, it was a nightmare. So- that I could suddenly go to the school where it was so accepted and so de rigueur, I had to go to Oberlin. I mean, I, but how did that happen? Because if you are living on Long Island the yes, year before yeah. and it's the 80s and everyone is closeted or feeling alone mm -hmm. in what they want, how is it that you get on a plane or a train or a bus to Oberlin the next year and it's a completely different environment? Well, it's a forced community. Like high school is just whoever the hell lives in your neighborhood and the world is mostly straight and the world is mostly homophobic. Whereas Oberlin, people are purposely going there because it's a liberal school and they're, if they're not artists, they're artistically sensitive. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. have this, you know, this conglomeration of people that are gay or just gay friendly and it just was a totally different. I mean, when I did Oliver, when I was doing that, there were gay people there. I knew there were gay people in the ensemble. That was 1979. And, you know, it's the same adults thing. Adults in the yeah. show? Yeah, uh -huh. not kids. Right. But adults. I knew, I was like, oh my God, the music director is gay. And I knew this guy was gay. Like, people, I knew people that were gay in right. that. And then I went back to high school and nobody was, quote unquote. But then you go to Oberlin and it's like, it just was totally de rigueur. It's like, I went there to visit as a senior in, in high school and it just was like, oh yeah, he's gay. And it was just totally normal. So, um, so that must have been very happy making. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. I mean, it completely um, 
set me up for the rest of my life. It was like, it was like being on Broadway where it's just, it's totally normal to be gay and it's totally fine. I don't know what it would have been like if I had gone to like Indiana or Northwest, one of those big schools where I would have right. been in a minority. Instead, right. I felt like I was in the majority. So when did you discover your first true love, as far as I can understand, is Barbara Streisand? You know, everything is really for my siblings. Like everything I liked was really filtered down for my siblings, even Chicago and stuff, because my sister Nancy saw it. She had the album. So Barbara, there was just albums around the house. And for whatever reason, it really appealed to me. So it wasn't like I even bought a Barbara Streisand album myself when I was a kid. You inherited them. Yeah, exactly. Or so, stole them from their, your sister's Well, no, we, had, we only had one room. I was constantly by myself because everyone was so much older than me, uh, 10 years older, 9 years older, 6 years older. So it was always just me by myself, just sitting on the couch, constantly sitting on the couch, or, um, you know, or trying to stage it. But Barbara Streisand, I want to try to stage or just listen to it. And then when I got older, my friend Whitney loved Barbara Streisand, and she introduced me to stuff I didn't know, like the second Barbara Streisand album, and I actually didn't know Funny Girl, which is so funny. She introduced me to that, and I remember holding up like my Walkman, I think, to like her record player, and I taped it onto a cassette, and then I would listen to it on my Walkman. Totally. So I just became – but then when I was in college, like, I mean, the big famous Barbara Streisand recording, the the construction I have online, the wah-wah mule and the other stuff, I remember freshman year – playing it for my I would always play things for my friends and be like oh my god listen to this how she does an L you know and I would always lip sync it for my friends so the stuff that I would do for my friends kind of became my online deconstructions is that the beginning of it oh yeah I remember like when I was in sixth grade calling up my friend Michael Smith and playing Nell Carter hitting the E at the end of Ain't misbehaving and being like, oh my gosh, belting an E. And he was like, I don't know what belting is. I don't want an E. Like, he didn't know any, <laughs> right. you know, I had no one to kind of like. Vibrato. Yeah, didn't right. know what any of that meant. But how did you know what it meant? Where does this come from? You're a doctor. Yeah, okay, I hear what you're saying. Well, the vocabulary, I think, is just called, when you're in the business, you, you know, you learn, you learn vocabulary like vibrato right. and Head straight voice tone. And yeah. belter and right. Right. And then, but the scientificness, that's just always been me from being a little kid. I just would always pick up the needle and move it back to hear certain phrases. I wouldn't listen to the whole song. I would listen to specific phrases. And I was always, like right now in um, Disaster, there's a song, Without You. I can't live with living without you. Mm-hmm. And when we were making the cast album, I said, I really want the violins to come out. And I thought, my God, I was so young. I would listen to that song when I was seven years old, but I remember when I was seven, I'd be obsessed with if living is without you, ba-da-dum. And the violins would go, ba-da-dum. And I, I had to be seven. So I was thinking, God, even when I was seven, I was dissecting but it wasn't like in a cold way. I was just like, oh my God, I love the way that sounds. So that's just the way my mind works. I've always just kind of done stuff but like that. But how incredible. A lot of kids have, you know, I know a lot of kids who wanted to be astronauts, firemen, mm. and doctors, <laughs> and none of them are doing that as adults, right? So you've been able to take this thing that has been with you from the time you were a little boy. And when mm. I said earlier, you are equal parts fan and star. I mean, Disaster obviously brought this all together because you were starring in a musical on Broadway that you wrote. You totally got to control it. Yeah. It must have been an incredibly exciting moment for that all to come together and to star in it. Yeah, it was. I mean, also the other part was that I wanted to do a show with my friends because mm-hmm. I read Charles Bush's book, uh, Whores of Lost Atlantis, which is about how he wrote Vampire Lesbians of Sodom and surrounded himself with his friends. So I got to write it with my best friend, Jack Plotnick, who I had met during pageant. We've been writing comedy together for years, and he got to direct it. And then you got to cast all your friends in it. I know almost everyone in that show is someone that you have a long history with. How, for example, do you know Faith Prince originally? Faith Prince and I were in group therapy in 1991. No, you were not. Oh, yeah, before she got Guys and Dolls. <laughs> I always wanted to do group therapy. Oh, I only great. knew it from, like, New Heart, right? And yeah. then Meryl Streep and Heartburn and her ring gets stolen. And How do you do group therapy? You know, I think it depends on your therapist. Our group therapy was 
it's one of those, I think our therapist theory is you kind of recreate your family in groups. So you get to kind of heal your family issues by what happens in group. And um, even though you're not choosing this group, it's a right, little random. Right. Like, you know, there's an older woman, like a lot of times you project your mother onto it. And, and really what group does, I think, is puts an eye on your behavior because I think you can have individual therapy and you're like, oh my God, this woman at work is such a bitch to me, blah, blah, blah. And then, but then when you're in a group, you can go, this woman is such a bitch and the therapist can go, yeah, she's angry at you, but did you hear what you said when you kind of dismissed her problem? And you're like, well, I dismissed her problem because I'm trying to make her feel better. Whatever, you begin to go like, oh my God, my behavior is not as as innocent as I'm saying. I'm beginning to see what I, and like my kind of big issue was in terms of dismissing, like, yes, people would say, oh, I'm devastated over my husband. I'd be like, well, all you have to do is, and I give all this advice. And then of course they'd be like, oh my God, you're dismissing me. I'm like, no, I'm trying to make you feel better. And you know, my therapist would be like, you can't deal with someone when they feel sad. We know whatever, but like right? you begin to realize what your behavior is. Is that true? Is. Can you not deal with someone when they well, feel I sad? Well, I always want to fix it. Yeah, I always want to fix would something. Would James say that? Would your husband feel like that is still who you are? Yes, actually, yeah, definitely. And sometimes it's really great because I will be like, I my signature saying is watch this, but like, you know, like my, it's totally fine now, but my, let's say my husband's mom had ovarian cancer and she really is fine. It's been six years, but it was like, her doctor won't, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, watch this. And I'm always like, I'll, and I'll always like calling. I'm like, I'm not putting up with like, oh, we're going to wait. I'm like, no, watch this. So in certain ways, it's really good because I'll get right to the fix. But in other ways, it's like, person wants to sit with their feelings and not uh-huh. sort of be like so you kind of rush to the solution yeah I'm like sometimes. just eat less and you feel better like that's why you're fat it's like I know that's why I'm fat you know whatever so the point is group therapy was great and that's how I know the whole point of the story is that's how I know faith friends unbelievable and, uh, it's funny you say equal part fan I mean I worked in the Rose O'Donnell show as a writer and she definitely was a fan and an mm-hmm. insider so I really feel like I kind of based certain aspects of my persona on that being someone that's not afraid to be totally fanning out over someone, but at the same time I work inside the business. So I feel like I based a lot of myself on Rosie. So when was your first like Rosie moment where fan and professional is coming together in some insane way? Probably the weirdest, most amazing one recently is I was deconstructing Barbara Streisand at one of my shows and Barbara Streisand actually came to it. Let's talk about that. So that was, you know, that's the whole power of the internet and that's why Things are much easier now for people that kind of want to make it. I just, you know, I have a lot of videos online. Mm-hmm. You can just really just doing because I love just kind of spreading what's amazing about music. So I had a lot of Barbara Streisand ones. And um, and I know various people that kind of work with her. So I knew her director, Richard J., just from the business. And then um, she was coming to SiriusXM for an interview and her producer, Jay Landers, was there. And Jay was like, oh, I know you're Seth Rudesky. You have videos online. And I was like, oh, yeah, I do. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've shown it to Barbara. I was like, oh, my God, do you have? And then she was walking out, and someone introduced her, and she goes, oh, you know, people play you for me. And I was like, oh, like, you know, it freaked me out. And then I got, I found out this guy, Ron Meyer, who ran Universal and created, I think, CAA. He was a fan of mine from the radio. So anyway, he went out to lunch and he said, oh, because you should come over one day. I'm going to have Barbara over to watch a movie. And I was like, what's happening? So like, he like, it was crazy. I mean, it was so bizarre. So, but that's my radio show. So we went okay. over and then I met her still for a second. But it was still sort of like, it was like, oh, hello. Like she was nice. And then Ron came to see my show and my deconstructing show. And within that, I have a lot of Barbara deconstructions of things I'm obsessed with. So then I think once he saw it, he was like, he... You know, I think people don't know if I'm going to be mean. Yeah, and he said she really needs to come see this, and I was like, "Great, yes, she <laughs> like, I'm does." Available. And yeah, and then um, and even her husband. It's funny because after the show, Jim Brolin said to me, he said, "You know, I didn't know what this show was going to be like." He said, "But I learned so much, and I really loved it." And it was great. So I deconstructed her, and um, I come out actually lip syncing her. I come out doing this uh, across the river, around the bend, this lip sync, and then I finish it, and then I tell the I ask the audience to say, "What did you?" 
what were you thinking when you heard Barbara singing? You know, what adjectives? And people were like, she was great, she was this. And I was like, well, here's what I was thinking. And I deconstructed, like, she begins with vibrato. She goes to the high note and head voice. It's as if Tafana can't sing so high, but then she belts the same note, then she belts higher. She does a blue note spin vibrato. And I deconstruct, they go, let's listen to it again. And then I do it again, and I kind of demonstrate everything you just heard. And um, I do that. And then I do, I even did this kind of quote unquote dishy thing where I talk about how. You can hit a note straight on, but if people can't hit it, they slide off of it. So I played her doing She Touched Me, where she goes, and suddenly. But then I play when she's live in such a park, and she goes, and suddenly, and she slides off of it. So cut to, she comes back after the show. She goes, you know, it was such a park. She goes, it was raining the night before, and I had a cold, and I couldn't hit that. I mean, she was literally like explaining to me, like, why she couldn't do it. I was like, it's totally fine. It's okay, Barbara. It was crazy. And then I play this one thing where she goes, um, hat. What is that one? Um, uh, Any place I hang my hat, duh. Instead of a T, hat, duh. She does like a not a not a T, but a D inch overemphasizes it. So she goes, she goes, I don't understand why I did that D. She goes, maybe it was from parade. They took the D from my parade and they put it on a hat. I was like, I don't think so. I said, I just think you kind of did it because it was I like the letter D better. Yeah, that's what right. I that's what that's I did. She, yeah, she, she could like, do whatever she wants. I like the way it feels in my mouth. But she was trying to figure <laughs> out, she goes, I can't believe that was me. Why did I do that? I was like, I don't know. So anyway, that was probably the most like my head was coming off. Yeah, I mean, I wish like I wish I had a videotape of that night because I can't mm. believe I got through the show and Anyway, it, that was so that that was amazing. And then in terms of disaster, yeah, that was my dream. My whenever I played a Broadway show, I'd always be in the pit and I'd be like, oh my god, like they'd get a better laugh if they did. The, you know, I'd always kind of give people advice. So doing disaster was great because I got to like, you know, write funny lines, but I got to do my own lines. I got to put the music that I grew up loving from the seventies in the show. I got to kind of do. I was obsessed with natural disasters as a child. I wanted to be a, a weatherman. Um, I had a weather center in my basement. <laughs> Of course you Oh, my did. God. I was obsessed with, like, you know, the anchor. How do you have a quake. weather center in your, like, it's a really raincoat cool. and a stool? No, or? no, no. My father hooked it up for me. Uh, uh, temperature and, 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 and um, antiometer, which is, like, a wind speed thing. So, and then there's, like, a, uh, a board. So it has, like, temperature. But when the temperature goes up, it leaves it up there. It leaves So you know what the high temperature of the day is. And when it goes down, it leaves one part there. So you can see the high and the low of the day, the barometric pressure, the antiometer. I was, like, obsessed with the weather. And with natural disasters. Oh my God, you were the most interesting child. No, I had two interests, weather and musical theater. I don't think I was that interesting. <laughs> and you brought, but look at that, and then you brought it all together. I did. I brought it all together in disaster, 100%. Yeah, so I got, and 70s music. I love 70s music. So it right. all came together. I can't not talk to you about uh, Broadway for Orlando. Oh. I feel like it happened in 10 seconds. That is kind of like my watch this. I mean, it's definitely my watch yeah. this signature of like, you know, watch this. However, I will say that was because of my husband. So it was my style of watch this. And the whole thing, what you were saying about happening in one minute, when he woke me up, he said, we need to do this. But he said, we need to do it right away because these tragedies, sadly, within one minute fade right, from memory. Right. So it was a Monday. It's a 24-hour news yeah. cycle. It's devastating. It's so quick. So he said, we've got to do it this Wednesday. So Monday, we kind of, I was just texting, texting all my- Who was the first person who said yes or that you reached? I would say, I remember the top, I remember the first three I, that said yes, because I can't remember everyone. It was, uh, I know the three were, it was Sean Hayes. Billy Porter and Adina Menzel. Mm -hmm. Those are the three texts I remember very, very immediate. And those are the names I kept using when I was asking. I'm like, mm -hmm. Billy and Adina and Sean are doing it. What I've always loved about this community, and it started early on in my career, first just... I remember the first time I was at a show and someone did the curtain speech for Broadway Cares, mm. Equity Fights AIDS, and you're like, first of all, they've just broken the fourth wall, <laughs> right. and and suddenly you're all in this thing together. Yeah, it's so powerful, and that organization has grown in all kinds of ways, Ooh. and and uh, they just do incredible work. So, what are you working on now? Uh, I'd say my main thing. Well, the Disaster album is coming out, and Disaster just got licensed by MTI, so it's like we're. Australia wants it. I mean, we're working on a London production, so there's a lot of disaster. Will you be in, in it? Air. 
Australia, I can't do, but London, I'm planning on being in. It's whether they'll allow me or not. I'm hoping that I'm going to do London. Yes, for sure. Exciting. So, what is it about Broadway? What is it about these soundtracks um, that it has become your life's work? I love liveness. I have to say that's why I don't like musical movies. So definitely the fact that it's live is really thrilling to me. Now, of course, then you're saying what you're listening to a recording. I, I can't analyze it. I would say that what I love the most about Broadway, at least song-wise, is I always love the decidedly not pop songs, meaning the, the scenes that are turned into songs. That's what I'm obsessed with. So like, you know, in Pajama Game, the song that I was obsessed with was the opening number where it's, hurry up. Hurry up, I can't waste time, I can't waste time. We're racing with the clock. Now, that's not only a song, but I love that it was three different parts happening at the same time, which is not a pop song. It's three different groups of people singing at the same time. In Dreamgirls, I love the fight song before, and I'm telling you where they're having the actual fight. I, I love, in a Falsettos, I love the baseball game. I love scenes that have been musicalized. So that's, I, I don't know why, but I just, I don't love like, I love you. Like, I don't love a, a pretty ballad. I love watching a scene that's musicalized. Thank you for helping us love it and understand it. Because for my son, it's the beginning of his life, loving and understanding Broadway musicals. Is he and, obsessed uh, with your cast album? Does he listen to it all the time? He is. I mean, I think for them, obviously, that I was in it is kind of hilarious. It's an amazing thing to have a soundtrack to share even after the thing is no longer. And all the video footage. You have the Rosie show. You have the yeah. Tonys. Yeah. There's a lot of it. So often I just wear Lucy's saddle shoes and blue dress and yeah, put on the wig. Yeah, just in the past. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? Seth Rudetsky, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, so fun. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. Hey, everyone. You can still donate to Broadway for Orlando by downloading What the World Needs Now on iTunes. 100% of the proceeds go to the GLBT community in Central Florida. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>